Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome back to this week's Companion for Change podcast, where we talk about community, change, social issues, and everything in between. Uh, this week, we have uh, Ustad, brother, whatever other titles. You have therapist, uh, uh, brother Tabri from uh, Taba Foundation. And we're going to be talking a lot about life coming out of prison, how to support people coming out of prison, and some of the work that Taba is doing. But before we get to that, uh, I'm going to give you all a weekly update. So or I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to ask, what's the weekly update, Malik? What's going on at Sahab Initiative this week? Yeah, so right now we're really ramping up for our event this weekend at Hunt Park. Um, we have a mega food distribution as well as giving out a bunch of Qurbani and Udhiyah from, you know, the weekend, you know, we just, or we're just finishing Eid, alhamdulillah. So, you know, we got all this meat that hopefully we're going to be giving out to the entire community, um, really trying to, you know, get volunteers and get everyone involved, you know, just come on by, enjoy. If you, you know, yourself need some or know someone that needs some, some food, you know, it's a place to send them. If you have some time on Saturday morning, you want to spend some time doing some good, Come on and roll through with us. Um, and yeah, just really, you know, looking forward to that, preparing for that, planning for that. And also a couple more things that we're looking at um, that are exciting um, in terms of the food pantry that we'll be updating you all with in the next couple of weeks. However, last week I did mention something that I would update you all on this week, some exciting things happening in the office um, in terms of a, uh, a new organization that we have coming into the uh, Sahab Initiative building. So we actually put pen to paper so we can finally announce that is that the Inland Empire Community Collaborative will actually be joining us um, here at the Sahab Initiative headquarters, our family resource center. So their main office will actually be run out of here at Sahab Initiative. They are an amazing organization that provides resources and trainings for nonprofit organizations and just everything for uh, nonprofit organizations here in the Inland Empire. So we're really excited to, to have them here in our office um, and, you know, being able to work together with them more closely to help the community. Awesome. Yeah, for the people that don't know, so Sahab Initiative's headquarters, we have two two properties, the, the Food and Wellness Center, and then we have our headquarters. And then within our headquarters, we have office space that many different other nonprofits we partner with use the space. Uh, amongst them is Taba. So maybe, uh, W, you want to tell us what's going on with Taba this week? Yeah. So, um, so what we're doing is, um, so I mean, you know, first I, I guess I speak a few minutes about what is Taba. Um, I don't, you know, just to make sure that the audience knows who we are. So we are an organization. Um, we're out of the the Bay Area uh, for about twenty years, and we've recently um, made inroads into the IE. And so, you know, we have different programs. We have an educational program, which goes into the prisons. Um, we have a life skills program, which is for people who are inside the prison and people who are outside the prison. And then we have reentry, which is what we're doing here at, um, at the Sahaba headquarters in San Bernardino. So under reentry, we have five programs. Um, we have a partnership with Sahaba to make sure that our members um, 
you know, can can overcome their food insecurity. So we are we're, we we try to get them, you know, like a bag a week, a bag of food a week. Um, we also have case management. Uh, uh, you know, with case management, they're able to get whatever they need. Um, they might need a birth certificate. They might need a social security card. They might need um, an ID voucher. They might need housing, job training. And so our case managers are trained to get them all of the resources that they need, uh, no matter what it is. Um, we also have like mental health um, services. So this is like uh, domestic violence classes, anger management classes. Um, and it could be just, you know, allowing them to just come in, sit with the counselor, you know, for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour to help them process whatever is going on in their life. And there's no shortage of stress and, and trauma in the life of someone who has um, either been to prison or has just come home from prison. We also have a substance abuse program, um, you know, where we teach about, you know, what is substance abuse? What's the difference between substance abuse, substance dependence, um, and helping a person to overcome the underlying issue which has led to the addiction in the first place. Mm. And then lastly, uh, we just opened a computer lab, you know, um, so we are providing technology literacy to this population. Um, I mean, you, you can't imagine what it's like to have been removed from society for 10 years or 15 years uh, and somebody doesn't know what Google is. Right? Like, it's easy for us. We can say, oh, there's Google Docs and there's Google Slides and there's Google Sheets and there's email and right like. But somebody has been gone for a long time. They don't have a clue about what that is. And so just knowing that and, you know, wanting to fulfill, you know, um, you know, just just to bring people up in their technology literacy. We were like, we've got to open a, a lab. And so, um, you know, thankfully here at the Sahaba building, um, we've open up this lab and we already have students that are coming in and they're progressing step by step. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that's the newest thing to answer you, Arbaz, that's the newest thing is the, the computer lab. Um, we have a partnership with Google. Um, hopefully they're going to, um, hopefully they're gonna give us uh, some money so that we can um, expand, you know, we can expand on, on, um, on this program, yeah. Yes. So today's topic, that's all It's all amazing stuff. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is around a lot of the work that you're involved with at Tabo Tabri. Um, but before we get into the topic, I want to just highlight briefly why this topic is uh, important for Sahab Initiative. You know, one of the uh, one of probably the beginning, the early roots of Sahab Initiative, the first people that we began to serve were people that were coming out of prison. And, mm. and I would say that if it wasn't for that group of people that we served initially, we couldn't have brought in and served so many different types of people. And, mm. and, and interestingly enough, and I don't know how many people, you know, even know this story, but in our early days, you know, there was a couple of people that we were, that we were serving and, and they were super persistent. You know, that was the, that was the thing that probably kept us going is that, you know, initially it began, we were just helping one person and, um, and we didn't know what we were doing. There was one guy, I remember, he came out of prison and he showed up at the masjid. And I was just, I just happened to be at the masjid and he's like, I need some help. Um, he gave me a whole story. And I was like, 
okay, well, I guess I'm going to find you some help. So I picked him up, got him in my car, and I drove to an attorney's office that I knew. And I literally just walked into the attorney's office and took him. And I told him, and, and the attorney is Brother Zulu, so if he's listening, he might, he might hear. But I just took him to, the, to, the, to, the, to his front desk. And I said, this guy needs such and such and such. And, you know, it was just like at that moment, you know, because that person's emotions were so raw, I just took it all in and just tried to see, you know, what are ways that we can help this person. Ultimately, that person, um, uh, he just disappeared. I mean, we tried to help him, give him a few things, and then he disappeared. And then somebody else came in the picture, and that person was extremely persistent. You know, we gave them a little help, but it was not only about giving them help. They were like, well, how can I get involved? What are things we can do? And then we started doing more things in the community and they were super uh, engaged. So one person needed help and wanted to be involved. And then other people started coming into the picture. And then we had this little group of people that, that were coming out that recently came out of prison that were volunteering at all the activities. You know, we formed a little support group, uh, uh, a narcotics anonymous support group where uh, people were there to share about their struggles. Um, and then we started doing community activities, community events. Um, we even did a movie screening. Uh, uh, for, for for Napoleon's you know life of an outlaw, we screened his movie because a lot of them like the like like that like that story, um, but it but it has a big role in actually shaping the the foundation of Sahab Initiative, um, but then eventually we grew we grew a bit grew into different spaces and started to uh, serve different groups of people, and you know one thing we probably realized early on is that you have to have the specialty to be able to serve that population. Mm. You know, it, it takes a lot of focus, a lot of effort where you can't really uh, not provide the whole package. And that's what uh, the work that you're doing at Taba. Um, so my first question is, why is this work important? You know, how does, how did Taba begin? What really laid the foundation for this type of work? Right. Okay. Yeah. You just, you said a lot just now and, you know, to cover every angle that you that you opened up would take a lot of bit, a lot of time. But um, number one, uh, the Table Foundation uh, is an organized. It's a five hundred one c three that was you know it was incorporated in two thousand and six, and that it was after um, you know um, some Muslims in the Bay Area, you know, just saw the sincerity of some of the brothers and sisters that came home from prison. It, it really is. It was that simple. It was like these brothers and sisters came home and they wanted to continue study the, studying the dean because, you know, they were introduced to Islam in prison. But when they came home and they actually had access to scholarship, it was like, OK, give me everything. I, 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 you know, I'll be here every day. I'll ride my bike down here to be with you. Um, and it's, you know, you know, so they were like really impressed by that. So literally Taba started off with like three students a $3,000 loan and a cell phone. Like that's how it started in somebody's garage. And it just grew. And, you know, the word started to spread in prison like really, really fast. Um, and so more and more people wanted access to the shake. More and more people wanted access, you know, to the information. So before so, we get to the next point, talk to mm -hmm. me about that point you just mentioned about the word spread really fast. How does the yeah. word spread in prison? Right. So there's already set up communities in prison. Right. In 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 the in prison, um, most people belong to a community, whether you're Muslim or not. If you're you, you could be if you're Muslim, 
then you are with the Muslims. And that is how you will be dealt with in prison. So in other words, if somebody has a problem with you, they're going to go to the leader of the Muslims and say, I don't I don't want problems with all of the Muslims. Right. But this guy owes me twenty dollars and he hasn't paid me. And it's been six months. And they know that that community um, can discipline him or can solve the problem so that, you know, so everybody in prison, I would say 95 percent of the people in prison, they belong to a community. And this is a lot of times how fires can get put out even before they start. So if you belong to a Muslim community, there's going to be an Amir, number one. You know, and so he's normally the one who's most he has the most knowledge of the deen and the people love him and they're willing to follow him, they're willing to listen to him. Um, because hear and obey is very, very important in prison. Like it can save lives, you know? It's not like here, you go to the masjid and, you know, everybody does what they want to do. And there, it's like, you know, it can, you know, you, anyway, it, it saves lives, it put out fires. Um, and then you, normally you'll have like an Amir of education. You'll have somebody in there who like, his whole thing is like, I, I, you know, I want to learn. I want access to all of the information and we're going to set up ta'aleem. We're going to answer questions. We're going to write to the scholars to find out the answers to these questions. And so if you find one Amir of education, you have just reached a couple of hundred brothers just by meeting him, just by knowing who he is. All right. So in that so in that prison setting, you find him. He's connected to everybody. He's doing da'wah. He's doing ta'aleem. He's, he's like the part-time mufti, right? Mm -hmm. He's doing all of it, you know? And so you find him, you've, you have instant access to 200 brothers. So just imagine, you know, um, you know, now, today, we're in, you know, the Taba Foundation. We're in over 500 jails and prisons across the country. So if you just find one or two people in there, by those one or two people, you've instantly reached two or three hundred people. So how right. does that, how, how does that communication happen? I, I know a little bit about the system, and I don't know if it's still the same. Is you know there's there's a website, you pay money, and then uh, the other person has like coins that they can use and whatnot. Is that is that still how it is? Is that how you communicate to somebody on the inside? Well, mostly now, a lot of the rates have gone down. Um, you know, because there's much more, there's much more, there's a spotlight on prison conditions mm -hmm. and the exploitation of the different prisoners. So it used to be really, really expensive. Somebody calls you from prison, you're talking about $20 collect call. Yeah. And then, you know, there was court cases and, you know, to make a long story short, now it's crazy. Like, it's like, why would you not want that person to speak to somebody on the outside? That can right. Help them. right, right. De-stress him because it's going to, it's going to spill out somewhere yeah. in the system if you don't take care of it. Right. So now it's a lot cheaper. It's like um, you can go online, you can, uh, you know, uh, pay for somebody to make 20 phone calls. You know, it might be like 40 bucks or something like that. And it, it goes into his phone account. Um, that's one way. Another way is you can just send money into him and then he can divvy up the money however he wants, you know. Um, so it goes onto his main account. He could put $20 on the phone account and the rest of the money he can use to go to commissary to do his shopping for food or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much how it works now. It's, you know, technology has made things a lot easier as far as that's concerned. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's, that's now, like I said, we we're, we're in over 500 jails and prisons across the country, 42 States, and we have over 10,000 students now. Right. So, 
Um, you know, so then, of course, the question is, well, what happens to them when they come home? Um, so, you know, just for your audience, I want them to know that um, you will find gems in prison. You will find gems and you'll find brothers and sisters who, um, you know, whatever happened, happened. And they went to prison and they found Islam in prison. And, and Islam became a transformative force for them in prison. And, you know, they love Allah. They love the messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They just haven't had to practice it in society. And so like our job out here is like, how do we plug in this population into the greater community? Because I don't care. I don't care what masjid you go to. I don't care what masjid you go to. There are formerly incarcerated in your midst. You may not know it. You may not recognize them. Right. Every formerly incarcerated person does not have tattoos on their arms and on their face and things like that. Those are obvious giveaways sometimes. Yeah. Right. I have not been to one masjid in California. Now, believe me, I've been to a lot of them. There are formerly incarcerated brothers and sisters that are there. The question is, is like, how are we engaging them? And I think another question is, um, how do we capitalize on their gifts? How do we capitalize on their experiences? Um, you know, just to kind of say, you know, one of the things that you know, just talking to some of the imams and some of the scholars and things like that, you know, like the the youth are attracted to like that street culture. They're attracted to it. And it's they're attracted to it because they really don't know it. Right. So what if you took somebody who already paid the price of that street culture and you let him tell his story about why you shouldn't do this or why you shouldn't do that? Right. It's much more impactful Somebody who's lived it, experienced it, paid its price, accepted Islam, and now can tell you from a totally different point of view the value of Islam, what it has done to his life. Um, it's 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 much more powerful. You know what? Like what would our communities look like, or 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 how much could our children benefit from that? Right. Yeah. So as um, as um yeah, has street culture changed? Has has it changed over the years? Yeah, I, people going to coming into the prison. You know, you have different generations of people now. Oh yeah, yes, it has. So, um, and without getting into too many details, I would say number one, there's there's things that have changed. Number one, um, the authorities, whether it's state authorities or federal authorities, uh, because of the technology. They're they're much more they have much more information about your life. Mm. Right. So, like, for example, somebody could do something in Los Angeles. It could be a shooting in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in the old days, in, in the early 80s and 90s, there would be a shooting. And, um, you know, um, the, the you know, the, the police couldn't find out, like, what car held the getaway guy. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, because they have drones in the skies over Los Angeles, whenever there's a gunshot, they know they can know the, the, the I, they, they can practically know the car, the color, how many people were in the car, where the direction of where they went. So what that does is that produces a lot more informants. OK, so just that alone has changed, um, you know, the, the 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 amount of people that are in the system and. 
I don't, I don't want to say the quality of people, but used to have guys that, you know, they weren't afraid of doing time. But now you're getting guys in the system who's afraid of doing time. They don't want to do time. And, um, you know, it just changes the way the system runs. Right. So that's that that's one way. Another way is because of the technology, there's different type of crimes that are being committed. Like before you have to you had to really, really be um, hardcore. Right. You had to have gunplay. You had to be willing to, you know, perpetrate violence. And now you got guys that are getting caught up on pornography, child pornography, right? They're filling up the prisons, like mm -hmm. filling up the prisons. You got people who are getting caught up in, you know, just crimes, financial crimes that are done, you know, on these platforms. So in that sense, yes, you know, the, the system is changing. The system, so, the system so you, is changing. So you brought up an interesting point, um, which I think, um, I think we've, 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 we've came across people that have had this background. Somebody that, let's say they, prior to Islam, they were engaged in something like that, you know, right. like child pornography or, you know, something along those lines. And they're registered as a sex offender. How do they reintegrate into the society, especially in the Muslim community? How do you even begin that process? Yeah, so that is difficult, right? It's difficult because once you are registered as a sex offender, number one, you have to register or you will catch another case. So the authorities want to know where you are for like the next 30 years or something. All right. And then they give them a long list of do's and don'ts. So say, for example, a Muslim comes out, he be, you know, became Muslim in prison. Um, um, you know, but he's, he has to register as a sex offender. Um, he can't be around children. Right. It, well, it depends on the type of sex offense. Right. If it's if it has to do with children, minors then he will be prohibited from being around them. So if that masjid has like a school for children, he, he, might, he or she may not be able to go there. Um, or they have to be upfront with the administration about the nature of their charge and conviction. Um, and so, yeah, it can, it, can be, it, can be, it, can be, it can be difficult. You know, they have to have special housing. They can't just be, they can't just live anywhere. Um, and sometimes, you know, they'll get double discrimination, right? So you'll have discrimination by the greater society, uh, and then you'll have the discrimination by Muslims too, which, you know, sometimes it's understandable, but every case is not the same. And, and, and we have to be careful not to lump everybody in the same box. I'll give you an example. You may have two kids who are in high school, and I know a case like this, two kids, they're in high school. They're both seniors in high school. One is 18, one is 17. But the parents get mad about that relationship. And so the parents call the authority. The 18-year-old is going to be charged with a sex crime. Even though the 17-year-old was a willing participant, probably wasn't even, or this in the case I'm talking about, wasn't living with the parents. But when you read his case, it's just going to say unlawful sex with a minor. Yeah. Right? You don't realize, oh, they was in the same class in the same school. You know, I mean, they were even living together at one time, but the parents got mad about it, called the authorities. And now he has this charge hanging over his head and it doesn't tell you anything about his character or the real nature of the, of, of, of the charge. So you got to be real careful. Like, so, I mean, like, I think ultimately the point here is that misogyny, if you're leading a community, you need to get, be more sophisticated right. in understanding the people that you serve and these different right. demographics and groups. Um, yeah. 
Go ahead, Malik. Uh, you had a question. No, yeah. I mean, I, I was agreeing. You know, we we generally paint, you know, a broad, broad brush for people who are, you know, coming from different countries because we might be a little bit more familiar with them and kind of the things that they're going through. Um, but specifically when it comes to this population, you know, the formerly incarcerated, in a lot of Muslim communities, we kind of paint them with a broad brush that they're all just, you know, these hardened, horrible criminals, horrible people, not capable of some type of transformative change, not realizing, like you mentioned earlier, there are some gems. And mm -hmm. I mean, some of the greatest people that I know found Islam while they were incarcerated, mm. you know, mm. and it, it, mm. it, it shows that, you know, Islam is, is a transformative force, but mm. sometimes we don't enable that transformation right. to kind of take fruition within our communities because of preconceived notions that we have. So one question that I uh, actually had for you is that, you know, and I know this will be kind of be difficult, but if there was mm. one thing you would want, every masjid leader to know about this you know our these brothers and sisters that are coming home and kind of how they can either like you know create policy or just create an environment for for you know bringing them back in once they come home what's that one thing that you would want them to know or suggest for them to to do engage with Taba right Really, because we took three months one time and we put together a flyer that it was in a PDF form that was, a, you know, a P PNG form. Um, and we literally contacted every masjid across the country and we sent this out to them trying to get them to engage. And that's exactly what we did in this flyer. We, um, we we put in there, you know, who is the incarcerated population, what are their struggles, and how you can maybe start, um, you know, like an not necessarily an office, but just, you know, just know where to send this population when they show up at the masjid, because sooner or later they're going to show up. All right. And um, the 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 what happens? The what happens when people show up? Typically, what happens right now? And and what should happen? Okay, right. So when somebody comes home from prison, uh, first of all, they've been reading all of the books or they've been hearing about how beautiful Islam is and how wonderful Islam is and how it's going to be when I plug into the Muslim community and, and, and I'm going to marry a Muslim wife or I'm going to marry a Muslim husband, right? And then when they get out and they go to the masjid, uh, maybe some of them might have tattoos, right? Literally, this is I've experienced this. I pulled up, I, I, I was meeting someone at the masjid and he um, he had just got out, been out for maybe a week. I told him, meet me at the masjid. I go to the masjid because I knew brothers would be there. These were brothers that I knew. I pray with them. I, you know what I mean? And um, so I go and I go there. The brother has some tattoos on his arms and stuff like that. There was a couple of brothers that wouldn't even shake his hand. They wouldn't shake his hand. They, they were very cold, very standoffish. Um, and it was just... I, the best construction would be they just didn't know how to engage, right? Like they just didn't know how to engage, you know? And it was like, when all else fails, just be warm, right? <laughs> just be warm. Like, don't be cold, all right? 
Um, so at, at the top of the list is that they just want brotherhood or sisterhood. The second thing is they always need resources, right? Especially the sisters. The sister comes home from prison. Where does she buy a hijab from? Okay. And if the people are not wel welcoming to her when she shows up at the masjid, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be like, for her, it's going to be a red flag, right? Because, because she already experiences uh, discrimination already. Yeah. When she, she might go to the welfare office and then, they, you know, she has a background. Oh, okay. Well, we can help you this way. We can't help you that way. When she goes to fill out, her, you know, you get a job and she has to put on there that she's a felon. She's going to get discrimination. When she goes to get housing, she's going to get discrimination. So now she's coming to a place that she knows is safe mm -hmm. and it's not safe. Right. So, um, you know, they might want to know, where do, where do I go and I buy halal meat? Where do I go and um, I want to get married? Another big thing is this. They want their families to experience Islam. So they come to the masjid with their families and their families are not in hijab. Their, their families are not, their families don't know anything about Islam. They're just like, come and watch me while I pray. Come to the masjid with me. And then they get cold stares. No, you're right. Like, not, not, you know, like explaining to them, like maybe, oh, we'll take your shoes off or, um, you know, um, you know, the men are over here, the women are over here, gently guide them. It's just like, who are you? You know, the attitude is like, who are you? And what do you well, want? It seems like there's an ownership over a lot of the massaged spaces, right? People feel like they own when you run the measure, your inner space, you just, you have this idea of how it should look, how it should feel, not mm. realizing that. You're creating a little bubble for yourself, right? right. And you're it's generally really based on how they look. Yep. Mm. You know, everyday life is really not translating into the masjid, and you have these two different worlds that are existing. And when does that ever work, right? When <laughs> the masjid yeah. is there really to build a bridge and invite people? Because you know, at one level, you're having this issue with people coming out of prison, and they probably they have probably just in complete ignorance of the struggles that youth go through, right? Yeah, yeah. There's probably just like complete misunderstanding of what, you know, drug abuse, mental health issues, all of that that's happening amongst the youth. And they're just like, they're just looking on the outside and like, okay, this person's a kid. And they completely ignore all the struggles that they're going through. Right, right. Despite they put them in public school systems that have really, you know. All this exposure to yeah. everything you just mentioned. Yeah, everything you just mentioned. Um, but yeah, really, that's what I would say. I would say engage. Just engage with Taba. Like, like you know what I mean? If, if you know people who are on the board of the masjid or the administrators in the masjid, imams of the masjid, directors of the different programs, um, that's something that we specialize in. We specialize in this. And we can show you how to engage. If nothing else, know who to call to help the person who shows up at the masjid um, you know, because most of the time, like, we'll know, okay, go here, go there, do this, do that. These are the times uh, you want to engage, you want to get back in classes. Okay, go to this place and, and get these classes. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's what I would say. You know, that's what I would say. What, yeah. what, um, what are the biggest struggles? I mean, I understand the measure challenge, but what are some of the biggest, I guess, personal struggles that, that they have to deal with? Is it housing? Is it Financial? Is it mental health? What are the biggest sort of struggles in reacclimating society? Yeah, so housing is at the top of the list, especially in California, 
but not exclusively to California. So, you know, I mean, like we have students that go home everywhere, Indiana, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, Columbus, Ohio, you know, everywhere, everywhere. And housing is always like at the top of the list. Like when we ask them, what are, what do you need? Uh, I would say over 85% are like housing, 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 you know? Um, and it's because it's for a variety of reasons. Uh, number one, housing is an issue anyway, right? It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, like housing is an issue. Um, but after you've been gone for a while, you might not have a $6,000 deposit, you know, first month's rent, last month's rent, you know, you've been gone, you know, so so how do you find and, a place? And, they just send, and how do you get out of prison? They just send you home and just leave you somewhere? Yeah, well, well you know, it can happen. I've seen it. But uh, most of the time, they'll have like a halfway house situation where they send you uh, to a halfway, they send you to a house that houses you for a certain amount of time. It'd be like 90 days, 180 days, or maybe up to a year, depending on the program, depending on the state. Uh, there's a lot of variables. Um, but the reality is that after those 90 days or those six months, you still need a place to go. And, you know, I've seen situations where people, they can't live with their family um, because the family is hostile to Islam. They can't live with their families um, because their family is the reason that they got locked up in the first place. Right. Like, you know, it was, it was all kind of issues there. So um, we had a sister in New York. Um, she came home. She immediately got in. She got in contact with us days before she came home. So we started working to find her the resources. And as soon as she comes home, she has to they didn't have a halfway house for her. She had to go and live with her aunt who herself was on probation for violence. Mm. When the probation officer found out about it, the probation officer was like, why didn't you tell me that? Uh, why didn't you tell me that your aunt was on probation? She said, number one, I didn't ask to go there. Number two, I didn't know until I got there. You know, but the probation officer, because the probation officer dropped the ball, um, she, she allowed her to stay there. But I'm talking about crises after crises. Her family gave her some clothes. When when the family got mad at her, they were like, give us our clothes back. I'm talking about this happened within weeks of her being home. Yeah. And so we, we sent her money. We helped her to get her own place. Um, you know, we helped her to buy a phone. Um, and, you know, alhamdulillah, her situation got better. But I, that's one story. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on and on, you know. Um, it's, it's like it's like everything that tries to keep you down tries to keep you down as soon as you get out, right? Exactly. You have all these different hurdles, and you know you're basically been out of society for like if you're gone for ten years, and gone for ten years, and you try to come out and you try to make try to make sense of it all. So this sister had been gone for five years, right? And it, you know it was it was for fighting, you know, um, you know she it was for it was for assault, and um, and so but it was the when she went to jail, she went to jail. She was nineteen. So she comes home when she's 24. So she doesn't have any credit. She's never opened a bank account in her name. She's never, you know, like um, signed a lease to be on her own. These are these are life skills that we had to teach her on the fly at the moment. Right. So we would you know, we would tell her, OK, this is what a lease looks like. This is what you have to sign. This is the amount of money you have to come up with. You need to go open a bank account. These are the documents you're going to need for the bank account. Like you have to walk them through it step by step. Um, and so, you know, just imagine doing that with thousands of people. Sometimes I open up my email and I see, OK, 26 people are coming home in 90 days. 
and I've got to get in contact with our um, coordinator and let him know, okay, these 26 people, you've got to, you've got to set them up, you know, and they're, they're, you're going home all over the country. Some in Florida, some in New York, some in California, some in South Dakota, you know, and we, we, we have to try to facilitate their reentry so that they don't end up going there to jail. And let me say one last thing. The vast majority, when I was, when I was getting my, um, when I was getting my, um, uh, my master's degree in social work, um, I, I did my uh, thesis on recidivism, which is the propensity of somebody, you know, to go to jail, come out, commit another crime and go back. Right. Like, why does that happen? And, you know, the evidence just indicates over and over and over again that there are two things. Number one, mental health issues that were never dealt with. And number two, substance abuse issues that were never dealt with, like at their root. Okay? Nobody wakes up and says, I want to be an addict. Their addiction only happens as a result of trying to cope with something else. Right. They're trying to cope with something else. So you have to find out you have to teach them other ways of coping with that trauma or sadness or grief or whatever. And, um, you know, and that's the reason why we incorporated mental health and substance abuse as part of our program. Amazing. Um, Malik, did you have a question? I mean, the problem is I have so many questions. Uh, <laughs> but um, maybe we can kind of, you know, just just end it off on, on, a, on a thought. Um, you know, one thing that it, like our boss mentioned, right, you know, working with, you know, the, the formerly incarcerated was something kind of, you know, from the very beginning. And I remember back uh, when we started, like, you know, we would drive them around and we would bring them to different events with us and different things of that nature. And people were always like, no, 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 you shouldn't be around them. You shouldn't uh, uh, associate with the diff different things like that. Right. Um, and, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, as, as we've already talked about, but Maybe if you can kind of leave with a uh, leave us with you know some type of uh, closing thoughts, closing things for for some of the people who may have preconceived notions, because you know all of us, you know, we have some pre some type of preconceived notions, but maybe something for you know the community to kind of know and understand about some of the brothers and sisters that are coming out, um, something that you know for them to hear to better understand our brothers and sisters who are coming out and coming home. Yeah. Okay. So um, without making it long and drawn out, um, you know, it's, there's no accident that this, that the system, um, you know, the system preys on minorities. Okay. This is a fact. The system preys on minorities. So it's easier for a minority, whether black or Latino or others to, um, to go to, 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 you know, to get locked up in the system and then stay in the system because they don't have the same uh, level of resources as um, as the majority. So, in other words, if a poor Mexican goes to prison, he's going to plead out because he doesn't have a lawyer. He doesn't have a lawyer that's going to fight his case. He doesn't have any representation. His uncle is not a banker or anything like that. All right. So it's not necessarily that that that. Sometimes we try to look at them and say, oh, they're worse. And that's just not true. Right. It's just not true. They just don't have the same resources to get away with things that other groups can get away with. That's the first thing. The second thing, the spread of Islam has always been amongst the minorities first, always. OK, 
It was the downtrodden, the vulnerable populations that always took Islam first. And in the American context, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing it that, you know, this, you have people that can go and sit still for one year, two years, three years, 20 years, whatever. And when they choose a religion, they choose Islam because of the promise of Islam. Okay, just, just think about this for a second. You're in this environment and there's not much movement, but there's something that you see five times a day. You see this group of people go and they pray and you see that they're working on their character. You see that they're always talking about God. People are attracted to that because Islam solves problems. All right. Now, you know, our deen, as Malik stated earlier, is transformative. And what we have to do is that, you know, if we are about tawbah, okay, this concept of tawbah, allowing people to repent. And if we are about, you know, purification, helping people to purify themselves after they repent, like, this is what our deen is about. Um, if we're not going to cultivate that, then, then, then what is our deen about then? Like, you know, and, and this, is, this is the canary in the coal mine. All right. The canary in the coal mine. For those who don't know, um, the canary, because his, because his lungs are so weak, the, the miners would take him into a coal mine, and as soon as he died, if the, if the canary died, they knew that they were running out of oxygen. They had to hurry up and get out of there. So in an Islamic context, if we're saying that we are about tawbah, and we're saying that we are about um, you know, purification, we're saying that we're about transformation, where does it manifest itself if not in this population? Where does it manifest itself then? Now you have a group of people that are saying, we love Allah, we love the messenger of Allah, we just need a little bit of help of overcoming transgenerational trauma, mm. right? And, and, and to have someone say, not you, you don't belong, it's not Islamic, right? It's not helpful. And if Allah did not want something good for this person, he would have never allowed him into his religion. It's that simple. It's a, it's, a, it's a powerful reminder. You have a group of people that are actively seeking, you know, the masjid. They're seeking, you know, the activities mm -hmm. that the masjid has to offer and, and, and trying to connect to Allah. And then, you know, a lot of times we're catering to people that are not really interested in that. Mm -hmm. uh, Versus catering, you know, to the mm. people who are actively seeking the, the spirituality and, and trying to connect with Allah. Um, exactly. I think we need to reassess our priorities, you know, just across the board. Mm. Um, I agree. Jazakallah khair, uh, Brother Tabri, for dropping by. We, we probably got to do this a little more often. Inshallah. Let's do it. All right. right. And um, and uh, we're we're getting ready to start something down in Paris, actually, along these lines. Uh, we're going to start a program. It's going to be called um, "From the Inside Out" at Paris Masjid, and it's it's going you know so it's a play on words. You know, what I mean, it's talking about um, you know working on the heart so that it manifests outward, right? Good character outward, but also like how do you put into practice what you learned on the inside out here in the outside society? 
So we're going to be broadcasting it live across the country um, so that all of our students can tune in. And, um, you know, everybody is welcome. And it'll just be, you know, just dealing with real life situations that brothers and sisters deal with when they come home from prison and just giving them, you know, good advice on on, on how to um, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, inshallah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, are you teaching a book? You said it was a book you're teaching or? Um, so, yeah, the, the, the name of the book that we'll be teaching eventually is called Matharat Al-Kulub. It's a Mauritanian scholar. Uh, and it means like purification of the heart. I, no, I think that's here. I think that's over here. There's the one right here. <laughs> this one, right? Uh, I can't really see it, but yeah, it looks looks familiar. Imam Maulud. Ma, Imam Maulud, yes, Imam Maulud. So, uh, but you know, uh, that that one right there is the easy version. Mm -hmm. Right. That the Arabic version is much more meatier, much more stuff in it. You know, <laughs> so. Twice the size. That's what, yeah. Yeah, that one's bite-sized, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to give you the full size, you know, inshallah. Because, you know, we want it to be something that we can that we can do over a period of years, you know. And so we want to get on a track and we want to stay on a track for some time, inshallah. Inshallah. I'll share the flyers inshallah. with you once they're done, inshallah. 